0: Well, good evening. It's wonderful to be here. It's July 21st, middle of the summer, and we're here. We're not on vacation. So tonight I thought I would direct our minds to where we might be if we were on vacation, which is to happiness. I think that happiness is one of my favorite outcomes of this Vipassana practice that we um, focus on here at IMC. The Buddha famously said, I teach suffering and I teach the end of suffering. I think that it could very well have been said, I teach suffering and I teach happiness. Once we free ourselves of our suffering, happiness is there. Happiness is one of those qualities that really isn't ours, but we can tap into it anytime, anywhere. So tonight, I'd like to think a little bit about happiness. And I want to spring forward from having heard Gill's talk on Sunday It was a absolutely marvelous talk. It was about presence. And he demonstrated presence in the midst of the talk. He had uh, a glow about him that I thought was just really almost tangible. And I remember him saying at the beginning of his talk that even though it was time to give a talk, he didn't want to focus too much on words because if we focus too much on words, we miss what's behind the words, which is really the important thing. So tonight in that same spirit, I'd like to minimize the focus on words and just use the words to spring us into the topic, which is happiness. I do have an announcement before I start though, and it relates A bit to tonight's talk, and that is that on August 30th, Tuesday, August 30th, we're going to begin a five part series that is a basic practice group. It's a group that's really set up for people that are early in their practice and would like to get together with other people that are also early in their practice and to think about kind of moving from those early points where we know we're getting into something that's good and we sense it, but we want more. We want more kind of information and we also want to be in touch with other people that are kind of at that same stage. So it'll be a five week practice oriented, some information group. It'll be from 7.30 to 9 in the evening, and I have the pleasure of teaching it with Susan Ezekiel. Susan has been a part of this group for a lot of years and was our past board president. Um, So it should be an interesting opportunity for both of us, and I announce it to you in case you're interested. The subject matter that we're going to focus on Uh, which won't be a large part of that practice. Uh, It'll be mostly about practice, do some sitting, and uh, talk among ourselves with each other. So there'll be a significant sharing part, interactive part. But we are going to give some material on the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths relate very much to tonight's topic. The first being that life has an element of unsatisfactoriness to it. Sometimes it's called suffering. And in some cases we've read life is suffering or life is made of suffering or it's inevitable that you will suffer if you live a life in this world in a physical body. And I I don't think any of those really hit it. I think the first noble truth is really that there is an unsatisfactory quality to life that is inevitable, but not suffering. We can be with something that's unsatisfactory, and that's okay. I mean, if you think about it, we can put aside the report card, whether it's an A, B, C, D, or E, and just let... Whatever it is, be. I'm enjoying the first four months of being married uh, for the second time. Uh, My first marriage ended when my wife died of cancer in 1995. And I was single for 10 years and then remarried just this last March. And along with uh, my wife, who's a happy person, one of the happy people, that attracted me to her, I inherited two stepchildren. And I practiced this just letting it be, putting the report card aside. It's uh, an interesting experience to be with people who we're very closely connected and we're tied and we're going to spend a lot of time over the rest of our lives, but we don't know each other all that well. And there's an awkwardness uh I'm not their father, I am stepfather. We all want things to be the way we want them to be. we want we we want our father. we don't particularly uh come into this life longing for our stepfather, but we can adapt to it, and we can learn to it so that's the teaching about the first noble truth that we may not be able to be with our father or the ultimate solution or what we really want. So there may be an unsatisfactoriness, but we can let that be. We don't need to perseverate about it. We don't need to indulge in it. We can just take it lightly. And taking it lightly is also part of the second noble truth. Second noble truth is that there is a path that leads to less unsatisfactoriness, or often it's said, less suffering. There is a way out of suffering, there is a way to really satisfactoriness, or in the case of tonight's topic, happiness. There is a way to happiness. The third noble truth is that the way to non-suffering, less unsatisfactoriness, or to happiness, is letting go. Not clinging, not holding tight. I'm reminded of that great phrase about angels, that angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. And I think we can fly just as we take ourselves lightly. The fourth noble truth, then, is the Eightfold Path, and it's the step-by-step approach to living in this world, in this difficult, challenging world with all of its unsatisfactoriness, being in the midst of violence, confusion, whatever it is that's impinging on us, Uh, people driving by with loud mufflers and loud motorcycles, whatever it is, we can be with that and actually move toward freedom and move toward a lasting happiness so those are the kind of the the elements of the four noble truths much more to be said certainly much more to be applied talked about how to apply these but what about happiness One of the happiest people I know that I've ever been in the presence of is the Dalai Lama. There's many stories about him and how enduring his happiness has been. He's a man who has been exiled from his homeland. He's seen his friends and colleagues in his homeland uh, imprisoned, mistreated, killed in some cases. He can't go there anymore. And yet, when he's asked, are you happy, there's this pause, this, this, this really marvelous pause. And he takes a breath, and he just kind of gets centered. And he says, yes, yes, I am happy. There's a story about his teaching a course in Phoenix, Arizona. And when he arrived, he was being shown around the quarters, the the, uh, hotel. And he passed through sort of a courtyard and over to an elevator and he was waiting by the elevator. And one of the maids, the door opened, and one of the maids came out of the elevator. And she she was kind of in process doing some cleaning. And she saw this man in the saffron robes and saw this sort of entourage. He travels with a number of other people. And she was taken aback. But he looked at her and he said, oh, hello. Where are you from? And she said, oh, Mexico. And he said, oh, marvelous. What are people like there? And they had this little conversation where she was able to tell him. She told him a little bit about her family and relatives and And then he said, oh, thank you. And they passed and he went up in the elevator. It was just a little chance engagement, but it was so sincere and his interest was just like the playful interest of a child. Oh, where are you from? What are people like there? So the next day, But at the same time, sure enough, the maid was there when the Dalai Lama was actually going to a meeting or something or other. She somehow arranged to be there. And they met again, and they had another little conversation. And by the end of the week, there was about 100 people lined up at the elevator as he came out of the elevator. And no one really needed to engage him except just to be there, just to be there. He has this infectious kind of, I'm okay, you're okay, we'll work it out. Sort of a quality about him. About happiness, he says, the entire motion of our life is toward happiness. No matter what religion we have or what we think of religion, we still want to be happy. The intent of life is happiness for all. He really lives his life that way. So what are some models of happiness? The Dalai Lama's model is compassion. He says, or has said on a number of different occasions, if you want others to be happy, be compassionate. If you want to be happy, be compassionate. And he demonstrates that in his life by not posing enemies, by not posing an enemy of the regime in Tibet, or people that he's dealt with that have not been um, satisfactory, let's say. So there's a model of happiness. Be compassionate. If we're unhappy, there's a reminder. Be compassionate. In the introduction, you heard about this work that I do, an organization called CARA that provides peer support for people that are going through a major loss or tragedy, recovering from a crisis, uh, having lost someone due to a death, a suicide, a homicide, and so forth. It's a remarkable organization. It really began 28 or nine years ago because people noticed that we were kind of toughing out death and loss and near death, and that as soon as somebody started getting toward death or had a death or something like that, the uh, energy level in a group would just drop altogether. In fact, I find this still today when I am talking with people on a social occasion and they say, oh, what do you do? And I say, well, I provide peer support for people that have had a loss, a tragedy, uh, or a crisis. And the subject often gets changed or um, we uh, move away from that. And it's been very interesting for me because I don't particularly find tragedy, loss, or death to be sad or even unsatisfactory. In fact, some of the most uplifting times I've ever had in my life are with people who have had some trouble in their lives. And when we can be together with that trouble or that problem and not react to it, but just be with it and be compassionate with each other, it feels like healing happens. And it's amazing to be in in a room filled with people who their first thought probably is someone who's missing, someone who's died tragically, someone who's facing a life-threatening illness. And to find what I would call satisfactoriness or even happiness in the midst of that. And it's not that we're happy for the situation It's like we're happy even in spite of the situation. We get to a place where we can just kind of settle and be at peace. So it's a real privilege to hang out with unsatisfactoriness, to not react to it and to be gentle with ourselves and with each other and create a safe space. And I see a colleague of mine Eugenia, who is here tonight, who has also done this similar kind of work. It's a a real privilege, wouldn't you say? When Kara started, there were really just a couple of hospices in the United States. And now there's hospices everywhere. And when we started, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had just published her kind of five stages of grief And so it was just kind of the beginning of being able to talk about tragedy and loss and grief, dealing with grief. We've made so much progress. It just is hugely uplifting to me to now be uh, in the midst of a society where we all have access to hospice. And in some places we have access to other kinds of support, peer support, So we all have the uh, impending death of ourselves and of other people. The teachings say to us that everything that comes together will eventually come apart. Every relationship will end eventually in estrangement or loss. Everything that's built will come down. And in fact, you may remember some of the teachings about paying attention to that which is deathless or that which will last, that which will survive. So the things that won't survive, we know, are our bodies, um, our relationships, our buildings, Uh, so what is it that survives? What is the permanent quality that stays? My answer to that is it's that quality of happiness. It's that true happiness that we can find wherever we are, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstances. Norman Vincent Peale says that happiness is not a person who has a certain circumstance or a certain condition. It's a person who has a certain approach to whatever circumstance or condition they're in. Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning, you probably are very familiar with him being in a concentration camp and noticing that even in the midst of huge tragedy and loss, people were approaching others and offering a morsel of food or a hand or a smile or something, whatever was available. There was a sense of generosity among some people. And so his whole book is about how did these people do this? How did these people find it in themselves after they had suffered huge losses to even have the resource of their presence? Maybe no other resource available to them but just their presence and a positive or a happy presence. So, this is the deathless that we have available to us every moment. No matter what's going on, we can be a resource for ourselves and for others. We can intend to have happiness, and that intention will lead us to a space where we feel happiness. And interestingly enough, Yogananda, uh, one of the other great, great teachers of this of the past century, said that the qualities of life are aren't not ours. He said, for instance, um, Peace. Peace is not ours. We don't possess it. We don't have it. We don't control it. We can open our hearts to it. We can embody it. But we cannot make it happen. It's there. We simply can open to it. Same with our mind. And this is one of the great experiences, I think, of practicing Vipassana sitting that we do here. You can't sit for more than about 30 seconds before you realize that there's something going on with your mind that isn't necessarily at your command. So we think, we have thoughts, the mind moves But it's not our mind. And in that same way, our happiness, our peace, our contentment, our freedom is not ours. It's not that we possess it, but it is available. It's like in our living space. And as we condition our living space and eliminate the... Obstacles that we've learned over our lifetime—our fears, our angers, our confusions, greed, hatred, and delusion—as we learn to let those go, it's almost as though the presence, the the space that's left, is happiness. I had a wonderful experience. About two weeks ago, I was coming back from Oregon. I had taken a trip with my stepdaughter and my wife. And we were coming across the Golden Gate Bridge. I got out the $5 and rolled down the window and handed the $5 out the window. And the toll taker said, oh no, you don't need to pay. And I thought, how could that be? So I said, why not? And she looked at me and she had this kind of, you know, odd quality. And I I just couldn't imagine what was gonna come next. And she looked at me and she said, you're special. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, wow, you are too. And so I drove off and as I drove off, I saw on the electronic window, it said carpool. And apparently there are certain times during the week that if you have four people in your car, you're called a carpool and you don't have to pay. So I realized that there was actually no need to pay. (laughs) I was special in a minor way, (laughs) we were a carpool. But I thought, you know, she, that toll taker really had fun with that moment. There was a twinkle about her, and uh, I really appreciated that. Made me very happy. Thich Nhat Han touches into this. Often, I think, he, he's a master of presence. He's a master of creating a space around himself that has peace and gentleness and forgiveness and ease about it. Thich Nhat Hanh says, The Dharma is a skillful way to live. Happiness is available. Help yourself. In a few simple words, I think that sums up this quality of deathless, this quality of availability, always available, always touchable. So, why is happiness elusive sometimes? Why is it that we turn on PBS? and we hear, you know, things that are difficult, alarming, upsetting, and we have a period of time that we honestly have to say is unsatisfactory. I've I've really learned that PBS has to be handled in a very careful way for me, let alone any other news or any other newspapers or whatever. PBS is the best, but even that, I have to just carefully parcel it out So in thinking about where my happiness goes, there are some triggers, there are some inducements, there are some attachments that are enlivened or made more active when I hear reminders like torture or like violence or like anger, hatred, confusion. And so when I sit, I can have space, I can have the spaciousness to hold that. But when I'm in my daily life, I don't necessarily keep that spaciousness with me. The presence that Gil was talking about on Saturday, uh, Sunday. And where it goes is I have this quality of clinging. So just like the third noble truth, I hang on to, boy, I wish the world didn't have nations at war, or I wish the world didn't have whatever. I hang on to that. The wish is okay. It's fine for me to wish that. But uh, if I hang on, if I cling, if I harden around that, then my happiness goes. One of the great teachers of all time was Lao Tzu, who was the founder or the beginning of Taoism in China and there's speculation that actually Lao Tzu was a student of the Buddha and he migrated up to China, but we don't know that for sure. We'll probably never know that. But there is a a lot of compatibility between Taoism and Buddhism. And Lao Tzu has a counterpart and people aren't even sure if these are two different people, but history has given us another name, Chuang Su. They lived about the same time. No one's really sure who was first and who was second. But here is a little bit about this unsatisfactoriness that happens in the world. This was said in 320 BCE, before the Common Era, 320 BCE chang Tzu says, I cannot tell if what the world considers happiness is happiness or not. All I know is that when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried away headlong, grim and obsessed in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or change their direction. All the while, They claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. When I read that, I thought, yeah, man, that's me. (laughs) Just on the point of attaining happiness. Rushing headlong, doing this, doing that. And occasionally realizing that that deathless happiness is just right here. The Dalai Lama's new book is called Ethics for the New Millennium. It's actually not so new now. its uh, I think it was published in 2000. He says, could anything be more sublime than that which brings peace and happiness to all? So that's a reminder that it's just there Peace and happiness for all. And what could be more sublime than nurturing that, fostering that, being an appreciator of that, even if we can't make it happen, we can appreciate it and we can remind each other that it is available for all. One of the stories that I love about the Buddha is uh, before he set out in, in the lifetime that he became enlightened, as Siddhartha Gotama, he was a prince. He lived a princely life. He lived in a palace. His parents, uh, his father in particular, and his aunt were very, very protective of him. And they wanted this person who they knew was very special to have a very special upbringing and not to be encountering the difficulties, the unsatisfactorinesses of life. And so for 20 or so years, he lived in a state of uh, absolute perfection as you can imagine on this earth. He had wonderful food. He had wonderful companionship. The people that he was with were young and vital and healthy. And so he grew up with a, um, I I guess in some sense you would say, a, a feeling that everything was satisfactory. There was little, if anything, that he didn't have or couldn't have. And then one day he was out uh, of the palace walls, which was an, an odd occasion for him, and he happened to spy an old person. And he was very surprised. How could what he thought of as being the perfect body get into that state? And then later on he spied An unhealthy person, a sick person. And again, how could this be? How could this be? And then at last, he saw a dead person. So old age, sickness, and death, the great conundrum of our lives, we all will be there. He saw it and struggled with how could this fit in the world that he had understood. And that struggle led him to realize that there was somebody that he touched, that he saw, that was able to be with all of that. And this was a monk. It wasn't a Buddhist monk because there wasn't Buddhism at the time. But it was someone who was practicing, uh, who had come down through the tradition that preceded the Buddha. And he had a presence about him. He had a calmness and a peace, even in the midst of old age, sickness, and death. He was happy. He had a happiness. And so the Buddha was very touched. At the time, uh, he was Siddhartha Gotama. So he inquired, what what was it about this monk that allowed him to be in the presence of unsatisfactoriness and yet to be happy? And that started his spiritual quest, which resulted in his enlightenment and ultimately the teachings and the teachings which have come down to us. And if you remember... One of his main teachings, people came to him very often. He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I teach unsatisfactoriness, the end of satisfactoriness, that quality of happiness which we always have. Those are my words. But I think that they are true to what he sincerely taught as it has come down to us. So faced with old age, sickness, and death, we can have a light heart. We can have a light spirit. We can remind ourselves to be happy. I'd like to end with... two pieces that are wishes for the happiness for all. Like the Dalai Lama said, what could be better? What could be more sublime than to wish for the happiness of all? And these are writings from the teachings. One is in what you would call street language or modern language and the other is translated, but in more traditional language. The more traditional language is from Shantideva. Shantideva was a Buddhist scholar who taught at Nalanda University, which was a huge university that focused on all kinds of things. They had, uh, they they were kind of like uh, Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, uh, Vassar, you know, whoever else you get, all rolled into one, uh, seminaries and so forth. This was like a great teaching center that was present in that time in India. And so Shanti Deva was a teacher there. And one of the great things he taught was this compassion that uh, we touched in reaching to others, wishing that goodwill for others, wishing happiness for all as being our source. So I'm going to read, first of all, the modern language and then the translation from Shantideva. And this will be a close. And then after I close, I'd like to have uh, just a minute or two of silence. And then I'd like to talk a little bit among ourselves with each other about happiness. I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get through the last goodbye. In the traditional language of Shantidevas, may the poor find wealth, those weak with sorrow find joy. May the forlorn find new hope, constant happiness, and prosperity. May the frightened cease to be afraid, may those bound be free. May the weak find power, and may their hearts join in friendship. So what, may we all find happiness. May we all be reminded that it is just here and it is deathless, always present. So we'll have just a few minutes of silence and then if you need to leave, please feel free to leave. Those who would like to stay, please feel free to stay. And I'll ring the bell after our silence. So just while people are shifting around a little bit, I wanna share um, experience I had with my stepdaughter before I came today, actually, I said I was going to give a talk about happiness. And we were talking about what are those reminders that trigger her happiness that... So I said, uh, you know, my sense is that there are experiences I've had that give me triggers, and so what are the triggers that that remind you to touch into your happiness? And the first thing she said was kittens. Kittens. Just she said she used to hold her little kitten and dance with it, and so whenever she a, sees a kitten, she remembers. I guess it was Christmas time, and she turned on some music, and danced with this little kitten. So kittens are one of those reminders, ah, no matter what else is going on, that happiness, that that sense of satisfactoriness, that space is always available. So I thought I would just leave that for her and ask you as a way to get us into sharing. We we traditionally share on Thursday nights and have a chance to talk a little bit among ourselves. What are some of the triggers or reminders for you that put you in a sense of satisfactoriness, of peace, of happiness? Something that's reliable that often does that. And um, just if you'll say your name, uh, that will be helpful so we can all get to know each other. Yes. Um, just when I
1: could be in the present moment, that's when I could be
0: happy. In fact, can you be happy any other time besides the present? <laughs> we don't exist. <laughs> there is no us in the future or in the past. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I don't to
1: hold on to what I'm feeling happy about.
0: That's the, that's the caveat. As you hold on to it, it kind of goes away. What's the old story about you? The tighter you hold, the less you have? Yeah. Thanks, Judy. That's great. Good reminder. How about anybody else? What, what do, touches you, or what do you touch and suddenly... You're reminded to have that happy experience. Yeah. yeah
2: well, really
0: Share your name. Oh, my name is Barbara. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> go to the woods. Yeah, that's a a phrase from the teachings. Oh, I do, yeah. Yeah, when my heart is heavy, going to the woods works. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of reminds us, nature reminds us of our own true nature, our own Special nature, which is that that uh, life, life is there. Thanks. Yes.
1: My name is Grace. I, I also like that. I just to do what you just said, and you know, I find that true. Um, out in the woods, I can feel very troubled, but as I walk, and actually, the more strenuous the hike is the better I feel, it's so invigorating and peaceful. I'm like a new person at the end of my hike. Very nice. And also, another thing I absolutely love is when I get up in the
3: morning and make my first cup of coffee.
0: Um, <laughs> 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 so is it the coffee or is it like the whole process? Kind of so the smooth? The process, the yeah. fragrance of the coffee. The yeah. Aroma, and yeah. I step
1: outside to get the newspaper,
0: Mm, I can so I can just taste that. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Great. Thanks Grace. Just thanks to Grace. Yeah. my name is
1: Well Ha <laughs> Appreciate
0: what we have here and enjoy it. Nice. Uh, thanks. Yes, over here. Send me. Yeah.
2: And uh, like John and you know, um uh, the connection, uh, I'm into music and play music too. And if you're playing with a bunch of other people and you just lock in, it's great. Jam. It's like this unspoken kind of bond you have. And Hard to describe in words, but everyone feels it at the same time, and uh, it just it just brings this whole energy to you and you just feel alive. I guess
0: it makes me think of that phrase: "What could be more sublime than wishing happiness for all?" When when you're dancing or when you're playing music, you're embodying that wish. It's like you're wishing that the harmony blends with the other harmonies and that there's just harmony and yeah it's good examples thank you yes back here yeah,
3: I was here. just going to say the same thing I play music also. my name's John so uh-huh. I was just going to that exactly what I was just going to say playing music and the connection you feel with the people other people that you do it with and with, if you're performing them with brings it back to a happy
0: feeling. You know. So what are the, some of the things that you can do to kind of help nurture that connection or that aliveness or that...
3: You mean when you're in other...
0: Yeah, when you're, when you're jamming or you're playing or whatever.
3: Kind of, well, I don't know. A lot of it just seems like it's kind of uh, just automatic. You know. like, uh, but I know sometimes, you know, I'll be going around, being caught up, in just all the other day-to-day things uh, and then for a while maybe I won't even feel like, maybe I'll, somebody might even say, hey, hey, do you want to get a play some music? And then right at the time I might think, oh, I don't have time for that, you mm-hmm. know. Oh, oh, God, I'm too busy. But then, you know, it's usually I'll kind of end up going, oh, well, maybe that is a good idea. And then when I finally find myself doing it, I'm like, Wow, I'm sure glad somebody suggested doing, getting back into some music. Or that the opportunity arose.
0: Yeah. Like opportunity yeah. To play or Interrupted your high productivity life, and all <laughs> of a sudden.
3: <laughs> or, or just wishing I was, you know, going, ah, oh, what should I do? And right. Being cut up and sort of like a, maybe trying. I think it's like, yeah, like you say, it's then it's, you allow it to, a way to get folk in, into focus. For
0: one so time. it's the reminder, and then you somehow find it there. Yeah. There it is.
3: Yeah, and also there's various people I know who I've played music with over the years and going way back in time. And maybe I don't, we don't get to play for some period of time, but whatever they happen to get to be in on one of these music scenes that's going on, there's always also that connection sometimes with people who have been doing it with even 20 or more years, mm-hmm. And it's always cool, because in between times, sometimes you, I might get be thinking, oh, gee, too bad I don't ever get to play with the so-and-so or something like that. But then you suddenly you can find, hey, well, we're doing the same thing, mm-hmm. we're just doing it
0: Mm, nice yes my name is Barbara and what makes me blissful
1: is to be with another person and communicate such that we both come away with a sense of who we are and we're both touched moved and inspired
0: Mm. so open so it yeah being present, yeah, presence. I think that's why Gil's talk was so. It was like the foundation talk. It was like if you never hear one other Dharma talk, you ought to hear that Dharma talk. I think. It's on the website. Uh, yeah, it'll be on Audio Dharma. I'm not sure it's there yet. It usually takes a few days to get there, but.
3: When did he do
0: that? Oh, uh, on I Sunday, so yeah, last Sunday, and I think it'll be called Presence. Yes, back here. Really, it's like automatic, isn't it? It just just opens. Yeah. Well, thank you. We are at our time limit. It's nine o'clock. What I'd like to do is just uh, share the merit. Uh, we have a practice of sharing the merit. Um, so if we could just sit for about 30 more seconds Uh, I'll just say a few words about sharing the merit and then I'll ring the bell and we'll be on our way. So may the quality of happiness that we consider and open ourselves to be reflected in us and moved out to others, so that all may be happy. So that the entire world has available and knows how to achieve that presence, that center within them, that nature, that quality, that is always available, however we call it. May it be available to those in faraway places, near to us. May it be available to all beings everywhere. And may the benefit of our practice together tonight go and nurture all and enliven all and provide happiness to this world. Thank you all for the practice together, much appreciated.